Hello, and welcome to our Vote 2016 Women in Politics podcast. I'm Joni Balter, KCTS 9 political analyst and editorial advisor. I'm here today with former Washington Governor Chris Gregoire. Hi. Lovely to see you. And Lisa McLean, founder of the Moxie Media Political Consulting Firm. Hi, Lisa. Pleasure to meet you here today. So I think we have to start with the special or extra challenges women candidates face in general and in this election cycle. This is probably too easy of a question. You know, it's an icebreaker. Is there a double standard or a higher bar for Hillary Clinton this cycle than Donald Trump? I'll start with you, Governor. Uh, You know, there's no doubt in my mind there's a double standard. Um, I find it fascinating that people believe that Hillary isn't as forthright and honest as who? Virtually any (laughs) time Donald Trump gets on the stage without a teleprompter or gets off the teleprompter, he says something that is absolutely wrong, and then it takes days to retract whatever he said. If she says one thing that's a little questionable, it's attack virtually everybody. We talk about her hair. We talk about her clothes. We talk about my personal favorite because it it was part of my (laughs) service. She doesn't smile. Well, I haven't noticed him grinning a whole lot, but we, we focus on she doesn't smile. Well, my God, she's talking about things like ISIS and safety and people who've been left out and left behind. What is there to smile about? She smiles enough. But so there's no question, and I find it disheartening, that we are holding her, the most vetted candidate, in my opinion, ever to run for president, against the least vetted candidate ever to run for president, to a clear double standard. Well, and she's also facing a catch-22 that I think all women who run for office face, which is, and it's been said, to succeed, she needs to be liked, but to liked, she needs to temper her success. And, you know, campaigning is still very much a transgressive act for women in our culture. And I think uh, Secretary Clinton embodies it. She was the most popular politician in the country when she stepped down as Secretary of State with approval ratings, you know, just under 70. The moment you reach for power, the moment you, you know, try to take your ambition to the next level as a woman in political life, you pay for it. And her approval ratings now hover around 40. Well, let's talk about what's really been hot this week, and that's the whole pneumonia business. I was struck by something that Seattle Times columnist Nicole Broder wrote. She was talking about, you know, Hillary Clinton. She has pneumonia. She's going to events. And she says, well, this is just what women do. They power through sickness, and they don't make a big deal about what ails them. Is that fair, this whole power through business? Uh, I mean, what woman hasn't gone to work sick? I think we all have. I think we've learned to do that. We watched our mothers do it. But do you announce that you're sick when you go to work? Hi, I'm here and I'm sick. Well, no, because that's a show of weakness. (laughs) And when you're trying to compete and stand up and be in the room and have your voice, you don't want to show off or call attention to the fact that you're not at the top of your game. Governor Gregoire, the pneumonia business, what did you you think of that? You know, uh, I've shared this with uh, my husband and my daughter's that it reminds me of me. If I had been diagnosed with pneumonia, I would have said to myself, this is not a big deal. I am not going to disrupt my schedule, particularly if I'm to attend an event recognizing 
those who died and the families who have grieved over the victims of 9-11. So your situation so much less than, than that, and why make a fuss? I, I just, if I was in her shoes, I know, there's no doubt in my mind, I would have said this is no big deal, and I would have gone to the 9-11 ceremony. And no, I wouldn't have announced it because I wouldn't have seen any big reason to announce it because I could push through it and I could survive it just fine. Thank you very much. So... Jump ball here. What's a man cold? Does everybody know what a man cold <laughs> oh, is? Oh yes, a man cold. So mm. when 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 men have a slight affliction that makes their them feel a little achy or their nose is a little runny, it, it is a it is a life altering event, not just for them but for everyone around them, particularly the <laughs> women in their lives who, you know, may push through their own illness to care for family members, including their husbands, who are feeling a bit under the weather that day. But Joni, you got you got to admit, why has this been blown so out of proportion? Why was the first response to her being diagnosed with pneumonia that she had kept something from us? I, I just think that she reacted no differently than most women I know from those in the workplace who would have responded like that to those in politics who would have responded like that. I get back to my point, which is, I think we're suffering from a double standard. Absolutely a double standard. I mean, talk about what we don't know about Donald Trump. I mean, I'm sorry. He's a businessman who is in dealings that he brags about with with foreign countries. How can we evaluate whether he is you know, free to preside over this country without really damaging and worrisome conflicts of interest. He hasn't revealed any of his business dealings. Well, just to inject my own feelings in here, I personally feel that if uh, Hillary Clinton said half of the things that, that Donald Trump has said, that she would probably have something like a 9% approval rating. Uh, you know, he, as you're saying, Donald Trump, week after week, says, you know, sometimes it's five things in a week, and the press is, is you can see them, they're just struggling to keep up with them. Um, one follows another. But, but, to the, but to the pneumonia health transparency question, would you say um, that this is a, a woman problem, a transparency problem? Which is it? That, and, you know, I've noticed that some news organizations aren't even buying that there's a gender angle here. read something in The New Yorker where they were saying that, you know, it's mostly about her not being honest about it. Well, I'll speak very personally, if I might, for just That's a moment. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. I had announced that I was a candidate for governor. And I went in for a routine medical check because I thought if I was asked on the campaign trail... I needed to be able to say everything was fine. I suspected nothing was wrong whatsoever. To me, this was totally routine, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I did not go out and announce, I have breast cancer. Rather, I went into emergency surgery, got my prognosis, and then I went out and announced that, yes, I had breast cancer. Here is my prognosis, and it's a lesson, I think, to every woman that early detection is the cure. This but was a this was or wasn't was it during office or during a campaign? I was attorney general at the time, uh -huh. and I was a candidate. I had just announced I was a candidate for governor. Never in my wildest dreams did I feel that when I was first diagnosed and I was going through the trauma of the diagnosis exactly. that I, I owed it to go out and tell the public until I knew more, and I wouldn't know more till after the surgery. Now. That's nothing like having pneumonia. 
let's be clear. I don't mean to liken a diagnosis of cancer to pneumonia because there is no likening to it. But uh, let me just be clear. If I had been diagnosed with pneumonia, my first reaction would not be, I need to go out and tell someone. My first reaction would be, I need to get over this because I've got things to do and I am not going to let it get in my way. I think her response was, she considered it no big deal. That's exactly how I would have reacted. But I agree there is a double standard when it comes to this question of quote unquote transparency. And I think so much of what happens in politics, particularly um, during campaigns, is that you know, what men say or what men claim to have achieved is taken at face value. And it's assumed to be true and valid unless proven otherwise. With women, there's this extra burden of proof where everything actually is assumed to be not quite true or, or, or a little shaky or invalid even until it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, we're also talking about sort of ongoing narrative. Donald Trump and some of these conservatives have been saying for some time, there's something up with Hillary. There's something up with her health. And they were they were trying to say that this is, you know, an election meme that we should be discussing. A swift boat kind of attitude towards an election. Let's swift boat Hillary. Let's create a falsehood. And then let's keep saying it long enough so the public believes it. And then unfortunately, she was diagnosed with pneumonia. You know, I got to say, again, I think she is the most vetted candidate probably in the history of the country, and he is by far and away the least vetted candidate. I want to see those tax returns. I want to know the truth about his foreign dealings and business. I want to know if he pays any taxes or is he trying to game the system so much he pays nothing. I want to know if he actually does contribute anything to charity. This is about the man's veracity, but it's about opening up him to the public, and he has refused to do what every single candidate before him has done. And Lisa, do you think that plays in the election? Do you think that if he doesn't release the tax returns, that people will assume there's something pretty shady there and that they'll vote differently? I think time will tell. I think so far he's getting away with it. And I think that, you know, the Republican strategists who are working with Donald Trump are absolutely intentionally exploiting the sexism in our culture to drive this this question, these questions about Secretary Clinton's health or background or whatever the, you know, story of the day is. So The Atlantic, I moved this along a little bit, um, last week came out with a piece, and it's, the headline is, Fear of a Female President. Subhead, Hillary Clinton's candidacy has provoked a wave of misogyny, one that may royal American life for years to come. So not just for the election, ongoing. What, what do you think about that? You know, I, I think this is a tee-up, um, frankly, that should she, and I sure as heck hope she does win the presidency, what she may have to go through. Uh, Unfortunately, much like the president has gone through as the first African-American. I think it's unfortunate, but we need to break this ineligibility of women to be president of the United States. Thank goodness she's there, the most qualified in history, and we need to get on with it. So she's going to plow new ground. There's no question about it. But we need to get over this double standard. I, I, you know, the idea, I was watching the CNN special last night of those who've lost the presidency. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea that you could say one thing wrong in the privacy of a fundraiser uh, like Mitt Romney did, and that would be the end of your campaign, where Donald Trump has said 
how many things wrong from the get-go that defy the founding principles and values of our country and still is in a virtual dead heat in many states, if not a number of the states around the country, is, is just something that I'm, I'm saying, but for the fact, but for the fact this double standard is in place, she'd be run away. She'd have 50 states. And what are you thinking about that? I also think that when she becomes president, the, the media in this country is going to need to take a long look in the mirror. I mean, a, a headline that like oh, that. Oh, I'm in the media. I, I, Let's see, mirror, <laughs> go. <laughs> but seriously, um, when you think about this from a worldwide perspective and you think about how America stacks up with, you know, the rest of, of, of the world and, and to know that, you know, we're 95th in the world in terms of women serving at the national level. 95th. It's an outrage, and it's a, it's a disgrace. And I think that, that the way the media has covered this historic campaign is part and parcel of, of, of that ranking. So, so mixed into all of that, Governor Gregoire, do you think women govern differently? I've had this conversation with Patty Murray, U.S. Senator Patty Murray from Washington many a time. And she's speaking, so not as a governor, she's speaking more, you know, as a legislator. And in that context, she said to me a couple of times that she thinks women govern more collaboratively and they're more willing to share credit. Do you think there's a difference in the way men and women govern when they I, actually get there, you know? I agree with, with Senator Murray. Um, for the most part, it's hard to overgeneralize because there are exceptions, but uh, for the most part, women want to solve problems. And so they're willing to get in there, get their hands dirty, listen, really listen to all those at the table working across the aisle trying to find a solution. The best example is Senator Murray and her female colleagues in the U.S. Senate who together came and said, Let's get over this. Let's have a budget. It's time to break this, this cycle of getting nothing done. That took all the women in the Senate coming together and saying, let's, let's move forward. Let's work collaboratively. Let's solve the problem. Most women have their eye on the ball of this is not about me and my ego. I don't ter- care about the credit. I want to get the problem solved. I'm here to serve. And that's how they work as a legislator. That's how they work as a, as a governor. Well, to give that some context, I'm sure you both know that the Republican and Democratic women in the Senate have these dinners, uh, these gatherings. It's sometimes once a month, probably not in the summer since, you know, they're not there, but they get together. And so I wonder if you think that sort of helps this along. Does that create a bigger sense of bipartisanship or an ability to work that way? So, my personal opinion, one of the contributing factors to why we have a United States Senate Congress that can't get anything done is they've lost personal relationships. In times past, they would get to know each other. They'd have barbecues. Their families would get to know each other and so on. So on the floor, it wasn't about a personal attack. Rather, it was about what's the policy issue, and they could disagree and still go out and work together on, on things and, and have their families get together. Women, typically, I did this as attorney general where the women attorneys general got together. We did it as governors where the women governors got together. And when you build that relationship, you want to go after the problem. You want to solve the problem. It isn't R&D. It's really about let us work together to get the problem solved. So I don't find that surprising. And I'll tell you, I really firmly believe if we had more of that Overall, in the United States Congress, 
if we went back to those days when they actually knew each other rather than you can't even be seen at a Starbucks having a cup of coffee because you're a traitor if you do with a person of the uh, other party, it's time to get over that and do what the women are doing as leaders. Well, first, we need to send more women to Congress. We only make up 19 19 percent of Congress in this country and only 24 percent of state legislatures and only 12 percent of governorships. I'd like to get to that, Lisa, especially. So what about the act of getting women elected? Do women have to run differently than men? I want to talk about that. And and Governor Gregoire mentioned some of that at, in, in, at the very beginning of this. So we'll, we'll get back to that. But how, how different compl- is it? To it's use- a completely different playing field. I mean, women are perceived as outsiders, even by those who, you know, portend to be their allies in campaigns. As I mentioned earlier, their qualifications come under much greater scrutiny, and so do their appearances. And, you know, this has been studied a lot, and the research analysis has shown that when, you know, the media talk about a woman's appearance— whether it's negative or positive or even neutral, like so-and-so wore a skirt or whatever, um, that decreases her likability and it makes voters less likely to vote for her. This does not happen with men. So absolutely, they are campaigning in a completely different paradigm. In fairness on that, men sort of only have one outfit. They wear suits. Yeah, but but in fairness, Joni, the media need never comment on what any candidate is wearing. What's your take on that? You you mentioned that. uh, The whole act of getting elected. Was there a different uh, standard for you than the, the men you were running against? Yeah, and I, I, I want to I credit Washington State because I first ran in 1992. Uh, my last... That was the year of the woman. Right. Patty and I were on the ticket at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time I ran was 2008. And the contrast between 1992 and 2008 is dramatic. But... We are not radically like, what though better, better in which as way a woman as a woman candidate sort of more comfortable better. with it used right. to it okay. right and that was because we had put so many women in our legislature they had risen to uh, leadership roles and so on so I think the state got more used to it I remember in my 1992 campaign my first debate where a, a gentleman at the end said, uh, no, women shouldn't be generals. Uh, Again, I was running for attorney general. I tried to explain I wasn't in the military, but he wouldn't have it. Women shouldn't be generals. I thought that kind of epitomized what the status of things was in 1992. You wouldn't hear that in 2008. Now, do not assume that's true across the country. When I would talk to my colleagues, whether they were attorneys general or or governors, Many of those states are back to 1992 or before. So that's what Hillary, in my opinion, is experiencing. Here she's experiencing, uh, are you qualified? Uh, I want to hear what you have to say on the issues, et cetera, et cetera. And she's way ahead in the polls. Now, that is not true in every state across the country where we still are preoccupied, as we were in 1992. What's her makeup look like? What's her hair you know, does she wear glasses? Why does she wear glasses? Why she got pants on? Is she trying to look like a man? <laughs> All of that stuff. Well, and I think we should be careful not to assume it has stayed better in Washington than than what than the trajectory, Governor, that you saw from the your first election. You know, through your second term. Um, I mean, some of what we're seeing play out on the national stage uh, with Secretary Clinton, we are still feeling at you know, the lower levels of the ballot, even here at home. I mean, men outnumber women two to one in our legislature here in Washington. Only one woman serves in executive office statewide in our government right now. 
And really the only place where women are dominating is our Supreme Court. And that's interesting. I think there has been um, a decline more recently that um, is important to look at and understand. Well, I'm trying to get the timing of this. I want to take you back to a moment that I know you'll remember, Governor Gregoire. There was one point about 10 years ago, and it, and it went on for a little bit here. Washington was the first and only state in the country to have three top statewide elected positions filled by women, U.S. governor and Senators Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray. Uh, I believe at that time only two other states had two female senators. So at that point, and then stretching for for a couple years more, what you know, Washington had this distinction. So what does that say about us? Well, and at the same time, we often forget we had the leader of the Senate was a woman and the leader of the Supreme Court was a woman. Um, that's historical. And they talk about it all around the country, by the way. But it's not something you take for granted. And I look, frankly, at my daughter's generation, and I remind my daughters all the time that in politics, in life, Title IX being a perfect example, there is nothing to be taken for granted. I remember when we tried to repeal Title IX because we'd solved the problem. Get serious. And so we have got to get these younger voters, both male and female. We should that, mention that one of your daughters is in politics. She is, yes. And she's a port commissioner. Port commissioner here, yes. Mm -hmm. Very proud of her. Um, and the other one is a King County deputy prosecutor. Uh, so both both daughters giving back to they their wouldn't community. Have, they would, she wouldn't give them dinner if they didn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but but the point being, uh, this this younger generation, I, I fear, doesn't appreciate you have to keep fighting for equality. And I will tell you, you're, you're talking about the decline in the Washington State Legislature. The decline of women attorneys general is dramatic. The decline of women governors Since is, what point are we talking? I, really, when I became elected in both attorney general and then ultimately as governor, we were at our peak. And since that time, in both instances, we have declined. And I, I can't answer the question why, um, but I think it's very discouraging because I do believe women leaders bring a different style and they bring different issues and they uh, work very hard to bring to the people that which will serve them best, which I mean by that the kind of things that Hillary is working on. Early childhood education, ensuring every kid gets not just a high school diploma but a shot at college, those kinds of issues. Well, I'm glad you brought up the youngers, and, and with all due respect to us all here in the room, we are, are, are truly not the experts anymore, And but we do need to think about the sort of the next generation of voters. We also really need to think about the next wave of female candidates, and one of the stories I love, Governor, is... Um, when my friend Noelle Frame first ran for office and how um, she reached out to you and you remembered her, you know, being part of your team when you ran and, and you stepping forward to support her in her race. And, and now she's in the legislature. And, and I got an email from her this week where she's out stumping, you know, in other districts, doorbelling with candidates. But she's also sending out emails for meal trains, you know, the kind of thing you send out when your girlfriend's about to have a baby. Yeah. Noelle is helping to organize meals get sent to Christine Reeves, who's running for state representative representative in, in a very competitive race in South King County right now. And so that sort of passing down tradition of reaching and helping the next gal along, I think, is 
is something that is, you know, still happening in Washington state. But we really should be asking that next wave of folks and the young women consultants who are emerging in this community about the why. Well, I'd like to talk about uh, the Washington legislature and the makeup of it for a second, because for many years, Washington and Maine would trade off the top state for percentage of, of female legislators. And that has dropped off. And, and Lisa, you, you were concerned about that. You wanted to address that. Yeah, well, we're about 33, 34% female in our legislature right now. It used to be in the 40s. Yeah. Yes, and, right? you know, 40 right. not even good enough in my view. <laughs> and it's an exciting year because in Washington State right now, we have six women under the age of 40 running for the House and Senate. And for the first time in a while, we could win a majority of the House Democratic Caucus among women. Um, and there is a 26-year-old woman uh, for, for, who was elected to the legislature a couple years ago. Yeah. I don't know if she's still 26, but, but she was. Well, <laughs> I can assure you she's not. <laughs> it's going to be tough to pull that off, but I think maybe, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things we've seen, um, I think, is some new energy and new leadership cropping up in the political community, at least on the Democratic side of the aisle where I work. And you're seeing groups like, you know, the Women's Political Caucus, Win With Women, FemPAC. FemPAC is the new one that we just heard about. Can yeah. you describe who they are? Well, you know, they're terrific is what they are, and they're, and they're stepping up, I think, to fill a void here uh, locally in Seattle, where um, the district elections, I think, have opened up some new opportunities for women, particularly young women, to step up the and The Seattle run. City Council, we should point out, yeah. is now 5-4, five, five women and four men. Yeah, so that's, which is... It's an, happened before in Seattle, actually, too. Back in the 90s, there were seven women and two yeah. Two men, but yeah. And it's an exciting trend because I, you know, I think as we've talked about earlier in this podcast, um, you know, women, I think particularly young women, I think particularly women of color um, start out as the outsider in their race. And I think, you know, women, when we're looking for, you know, people to step up and run, you know, just, so, just in terms of the way women are socialized from a very young age, in terms of, you know, how they interact with their parents, whether or not they play team sports, whether they're exposed to political information and opportunity at a young age. I think it's groups like FEMPAC that are starting to push that agenda and ask those questions and get people excited about and comfortable with the idea of a woman in her 30s or her late 20s stepping up to serve in public office like we see men do all the time. You know, one of the biggest issues that I have seen, and I suffered it as well, is women, particularly now young women, who people approach and say, would you consider it? Or they think to themselves, should I do it? Hold themselves oh, yes. to yes, a yes. different standard. I'm not the best well-qualified. I'm not perfect. I haven't done everything. I should wait. Yes. I should yes. wait. Meanwhile, typically a male counterpart who may even be much less qualified, doesn't have that doubt or that question, goes ahead and runs. So one of the things I think we need to do with this new generation of young women is say, your voice has got to reflect your generation. We desperately need it in the legislature. Do not sit there and say, I'm not qualified. You are qualified. Get out there and run. And I want to talk about, um, I want to move this along time-wise here, so uh, forgive me. Uh, I wanted to talk about the 7th Congressional District race, and you have um, an interest in that, so you should tell us what it is. Yes. No, um, my firm works with Emily's List, and so we have been um, 
independently and in no way coordinated with the campaign um, working to help elect Pramila Jayapal. Okay, so with that as the context, does the fact that Pramila Jayapal, who she's running against uh, State Rep. Brady Walkinshaw in the 7th District, um, Jim McDermott has retired, does the fact that she is a woman and a woman of color help or hurt her in that race? I'll start with you, Governor, on that. You know, maybe maybe it's different anyplace else in the state, but I I think in that district it helps her uh, because I think she is a reflection of that district. She looks like that district. Uh, Her values, her agenda, her policy issues reflect that district. Um, So I actually think she is not put at a disadvantage because she's a woman in that district. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that about any other district, but I do think uh, she that. fits that district. Does it help or hurt, Lisa? Well, one of the things I was just so amazed by was when she won her nine-way primary by more than 40%. How many— You mean that was her her number in the in the primary? Yeah, when she yeah. won the primary she... nine, with against eight other candidates. Yes. There was so much media coverage about who would be in second place. I was shocked. I was like, she won by more than 40% in a nine-way race. I mean— I just don't think they would have written those articles if she were a man. Well, speaking of, um, I don't know, probably sensational media headlines anyway, uh, and we're running out of time, so just keep this tight. The New York Times recently ran a piece on on the op-ed page. Um, The B word, I'm not going to do it, the B word America needs. What if Hillary Clinton's toughness is the key to her victory? What, What do you all think of even using that as a headline or if her toughness could actually be the, the thing, a female who's tough, that, that helps her win? My instinct is that's a very, gen, you're going to get a different answer, and it's very generational in terms of who you ask. I think younger... So, so it's kind of a cool thing. At the, at the, I, think, at the I think younger generations of women are owning the B word. Um, <laughs> and, and it is a point of pride, uh, you know, for many of my younger colleagues. And, and I think it symbolizes that your likability is not as important as your credibility and as your capability. You know, I, I, your head. I am because I, you know, <laughs> I, I went through this double standard and I think she's going through this double standard. I think she is rock solid. I think she's thoughtful. I think she's steady as she goes. That's why to me, when we look at the status of international affairs, she is so critical in this race. But rather than seeing it through the words I just articulated, Rather, too often it is seen as, therefore, she is a bee, okay? Yeah. Now, has anybody said anything negative about him? And he's talking about giving nuclear weapons to people and how he really well, likes fairness, Putin and people so People say he's crazy. Uh, a lot of folks have said that, have started, you know, psychoanalyzing him. Uh, but, Joni, I don't think that has to do with whether is, is he tough or she tough. I think that has to do with something different. But the point being... I still believe our country, when it comes to a woman candidate, when she's tough, when she's strong, and so on, attach that word in a negative way, in a negative way, I do agree that the younger generation is seeing through it. But we've got to get over that. Women can be tough, they can be strong, and that's what they need if they're going to lead the country. Well, thank you both. That was fast. <laughs> and it's definitely a subject that, that we could keep talking about for, for quite some time. So I want to thank you, Governor Gregoire and Lisa McLean. I'm Joni Balter. Thanks for listening. And for more election stories, please visit us at kcts9.org.